welcome to the second instalment of Preview, brought to you by the Cranley School Politics Department. We are now only nine days away from the Young Voters EU referendum debate at Cranley School, chaired by Anne Milton, with Paul Lomas and Chris Grayling MP arguing for the Remain and the Leave camps, respectively. Many thanks for all of your comments and support for our first podcast, Back of the Queue, which is still available on the Cranley School website and on iTunes. Today, I'm once again joined by my trusted team of Upper Six political enthusiasts, Ali Johnston, Dan Pienaar, Laura Clark and Cam Skader. Welcome, team. Our focus today is EU jargon busting. A number of people have been in touch with us following the first podcast to ask for us to explain in lay persons or lay voters terms some of the key terminology that's being banded around in the EU in-out debate. So if you don't know your pooled sovereignty from your Schengen area and if you think that TTIP is a New York rap artist, then today's show is for you. The four areas that we're going to attempt to make crystal clear today are the history and structure of the EU, sovereignty, trade and migration, and finally, human rights. Now, to honour a political figure that's going through a bit of a tough time at the moment, we thought we'd take a leaf out of Jeremy Corbyn's book and directly answer some of the questions that have been put forward by our listeners. So, stand by team, ready for our first question on the history and structure of the EU. Our first question is from Lewis from Cranley, who asks, Dear team, what exactly is the European Union... When was it created and when did Britain become a member? Uh, Cam, I think we're going to you on this one. Far away. Cool. So the European Union is a political and economic union between 28 states in Europe. It's aimed at keeping peace and promoting harmonious trade policies and political dealings between its member nations. It began as a trade deal on coal and steel between six nations in 1950. The reason it was... Uh, made between coal and steel is because these were the main elements that go into making weaponry. And so if you integrate these, then you integrate the countries and hopefully stop future wars. These countries were France, Belgium, Netherlands, Germany, Italy and Luxembourg. In 1957, the Treaty of Rome was signed to create the European Economic Community. Um, Britain then tried to join the EEC in the 1960s, but only finally gained entry under the Prime Minister Ted Heath in 1973. In 1995, after, after signing the Maastricht Treaty, the EEC was replaced with the European Union. Croatia was the last country to join the EU in 2013. For a more detailed view on this, uh, BBC, uh, BBC iPlayer has got a uh, documentary by Nick Robinson on it called Europe, Them or Us. Yeah, very good documentary. Would thoroughly recommend anyone watching that. So thanks very much, guys. Uh, Ali, I think you've got a few more fun facts to, uh, to bring us this, uh, this podcast, so looking forward to a few more of them. Our next question is from Fran from West House, uh, and her question is, team, what on earth are the following things and what do they do? Number one, the European Commission. Number two, the Eurozone. Uh, and also, could someone please tell me what the phrase ever closer union means? It's something that David Cameron keeps rabbiting on about, and I don't know what it is. So let's start with the European Commission. Who wants to have a go on this one? So the European Commission is the executive body of the EU. It's where all legislation is imposed, decisions are implemented, uh, EU treaties are upheld and uh, EU business is generally managed. So it's formed of a cabinet government of 28 ministers, one from each country. Um, one of these ministers is the uh, elected or ele appointed president rather than elected, which is currently Jean-Claude Juncker. There are no elections for these members. The 28 ministers are appointed by um, members of the EU states in these countries. Um, that means that there is a slight question mark over legitimacy, which we'll get on later. 
Okay, so these are the unelected bureaucrats that Nigel Farage keeps going on about. The people in Brussels who are not elected by us that make all the decisions that Britain has no say about. Is that correct? Uh, yes, and that's what one of the key problems that many people have said is that uh, the majority of legislation that's made by the EU is actually made only by 28 unelected appointed ministers um, and that all the elected MEPs, all their job is to do is to scrutinise policy. So that's one of the key problems with legitimacy that many people raise. OK, excellent. What about the Eurozone? What is the Eurozone? And who wants to have a go on that? The Eurozone is a collection of countries that all use the euro. Um, now, we're, we're not a member of the Eurozone. We decided not to not to join this because we wanted to still use the pound. Um and so that's that's in short what the yeah. Eurozone is. The Eurozone is got Austria, Belgium, Cyprus, Estonia, Finland, France, Germany, Greece, Ireland, Italy, Latvia, Lithuania, Luxembourg, Malta, the Netherlands, Portugal, Slovakia, Slovenia and Spain. Um, and they've all got a monetary agreement with the EU. The only means of fiscal um, management and balance is actually something called the Eurogroup, which isn't too strong, which means there's no actual fiscal... Uh, legislation that that means that there is any control over the euro, which is one of the key pro reasons that the UK isn't part of the EU, uh, the euro. Okay, so eurozone countries that have the euro, so that's the basics of that, which Britain is not one. Okay, finally, this phrase "ever closer union" is this something that's in the EU? What is ever closer union? Ever closer union is is basically just something that someone once said, and everyone seems to have picked up on it. Uh, it's, it's it's more of an ideology about getting people more politically and more politically close. Uh, it's not something we want to be part of because it's it's a whole day of making the United States of Europe and we're not all for that um, on in the UK. It's it's merely just a phrase, I think. Yeah, it's been thrown around quite a lot recently, but, but it actually doesn't... Uh, it's ma mainly politically is the way it was used. It doesn't apply to... Uh, in saying in David Cameron saying that it doesn't apply to the UK actually doesn't mean anything legally. Uh, ever closer union was never a legal agreement. Um, and all it means is that a, a, a sort of state so close fiscally should also be close politically. Um, but as I say, it's, it's political rather than legal. OK, there is one thing to, to, that I will add on this, is this ever closer union for countries who do have the euro as a currency. There is, after the problems with the euros in the last couple of years, there is, it seems to be more of a need for them to get closer together, to fix budgets, fix exchange rates, to make sure you don't have another incident the other year with Greece spending too much money, Ireland borrowing too much money, Portugal borrowing too much money and that sort of thing. OK, so... Just quickly on this, David Cameron has actually claimed in his new EU deal uh, that all of these problems are solved because Britain can opt out of ever closer union. We've got a bit of a clip on the speech that Cameron made in February. Let's have a quick listen to David Cameron talking about ever closer union now. This deal has delivered on the commitments I made at the beginning of this renegotiation process. Britain will be permanently out of ever closer union, never part of a European superstate. There will be tough new restrictions on access to our welfare system for EU migrants. No more something for nothing. Britain will never join the euro, and we've secured vital protections for our economy and a full say over the rules of the free trade single market while remaining outside the euro. From my take on that, Cameron seems to have said that in this new deal, Britain can opt out of ever closer union. But does this really mean anything given that ever closer union isn't really a law? Or has he just sort of made something up? I say that's quite a lot of political manoeuvring um, because opting out of ever closer union, as I say, is nothing legal. So he, he hasn't gone to the uh, European Commission and said we need uh, to opt out completely from, from ever closer union because it's, it, 
it's not a legislation or something that has to be implemented. So I'd say that, that, that that's more political point scoring. Ever Closer Union, um, to answer the, the question, is basically the informal, it's almost an informal agreement between a lot of the, the, uh, the leaders within the member states of the EU. Basically, when we opted into the EU, it was just a, a free market zone. It was about free trade. But what is it now? It's become a lot more, there are laws that legislate it. It's the idea that we are moving towards a super state. And although it, it isn't formal policy, there's definitely been, over the course of the last 45 years, definitely a swing in that direction, and that's what it's about. Okay, so this movement towards the United States of Europe. Very interesting. Okay, brilliant. On to our next topic, sovereignty, which is probably the biggest buzzword of this whole campaign. Uh, team, you should mostly be up to the task of tackling this, uh, remembering those halcyon days last summer, covering this with me in RAS Politics Set, myself and, uh, and Mr. Leak. So our first question on this is from uh, Robin from High Upfold, who asks, Hi team, hi Mr V. Uh, I have heard the term sovereignty used many times from the likes of Boris Johnson, Michael Gove, Nigel Farage. But what exactly is sovereignty? What does it mean and how does it fit into the debate? So before we go on to it, let's have a quick listen to Boris Johnson using this term in a recent question to David Cameron in Parliament. Perhaps I could ask the Prime Minister how these changes as a result of this negotiation will restrict the volume of negotiation coming from legislation coming from Brussels will change the treaties so as to assert the sovereignty of this House of Commons and of these Houses of Parliament. So, team, let's uh, help young Robin out because I think he needs it. Who fancies having a go at this one? Sovereignty. Laura? Uh, so, basically, parliamentary sovereignty means that our West Westminster Parliament has ultimate legislative power, which means that we can basically make all our own laws. And that's one of the most fundamental parts of the British Constitution. Um, Basically, when we joined the EU, it sort of conferred some of this decision-making power to Brussels. So now Brussels can also make laws which will directly affect the British population. OK, so it's affected by the EU in the fact that EU law can trump, say, law made by our parliament. Is that correct? Uh, yes. Um, it's EU law is almost higher law. It's called supranational law, I believe. And it, yeah, it basically trumps yeah, British law. Okay, so there are instances where the EU is more powerful, as you know, the Gove and Boris and the Leave campaign have been saying. Um, how does the European Court of Justice fit into all of this? So the European Court of Justice, not to be mistaken with the European Court of Human Rights, uh, was established in 1952 in Luxembourg uh, and is the highest court in the EU in matters of EU law and is responsible for interpreting EU law and ensuring its application is um, fair and even across all EU states. OK, but what about other unions and treaties we are signed up to? So apart from being in the EU, we're in NATO, the World Trade Organization, um, the IMF. So, you know, with the EU, we're trying to get sovereignty back, but yet we've lost sovereignty to these things. That's a bit confusing, isn't it? It is, but I, I think the argument being made by the Leave campaign is that we gain um, a certain degree of advantage from um, organisations such as NATO, which is obviously the it's a mutual defence pact. It's kind of, it helps us with our borders, whereas the outcome pain would argue that the, the European Union almost, we don't really gain from it, and it's, it's got more negative connotations than it does positive in comparison to, say, the WTO or NATO. So why do you think, why are Vote Lee obsessed by sovereignty? I mean, it seems to be, for some of them, it's their main thing. I mean, why, do they have a valid point? I mean, should we be concerned that the fact that a lot of our laws are made in Brussels and we don't really have any control over them, Laura? Um, I think in some respects, yes, in that we're sort of allowing other countries to be making laws that directly impact us. And a lot of people 
clearly have a problem with this. Uh, but at the same time, it's only a minority of laws that come from the EU. So I, I don't know whether it's impacting us as much as people originally think. I'm not sure how much it impacts us, but um, Gove used that ridiculous example that it's like being locked in the boot of a car, which is probably a bit extreme. But um, a lot of the in campaign are saying that we should try and stay in the EU, we should try and reform it, be a voice of reason. But the problem with that is that when the, when the EU was first created um, all those years ago, it was uh, made up of six countries and each country had a veto, which meant that if there was a law that they were trying to put through and a country didn't like it, they could just say no, and then the law was put aside. But now that the, um, the EU has 28 members, they use something called qualified majority voting, which basically means that even if we're against the law, the, the law can still be passed through because we need a certain number of countries to agree with us. And although that sounds fine in practice, um, Britain isn't particularly popular within the EU. We're not really in the centre of uh, European politics, which means that would be actually be quite difficult for us to accomplish. Okay, interesting. Very good. Thanks very much, Laura and, and Dan, there for pointing that out. Uh, a final point on this that, that I'd like to pick up on, and, and I'll, I'll leave it here, is that you know, I think we've also got to look at devolution when we think of sovereignty. And it, it someone seems a bit hypocritical that on one hand, the out campaign are, well, maybe not hypocritical, that's a strong word, but the out campaign are focusing on us, you know, clawing sovereignty back and getting sovereignty back from the EU, where at the same time a lot of them involved in it are, are pushing for sovereignty and powers to go away from Britain to Scotland, who are getting more tax-raising powers, Wales, Northern Ireland, the London Assembly, but also mayors coming up in places such as Sheffield and Birmingham um, and other cities around the UK. So sovereignty is it's a tricky one, really, when you're looking at it uh, as if to see sort of, you know, how far the loss of sovereignty is happening, you know, how much we're going to get back from the EU if we do lose versus how much we're distributing around from the UK. I think if we were to approach from an economic perspective, I think we need to remember that um, to maintain a competitive market, which the EU is, and to allow for fair competition between all the countries in in Europe, then you need to have a um, an equal set of laws across all the companies, all the countries, sorry, so that all the companies within them are competing on a, on a level playing field. And I feel like that's an important thing that we need to remember. It's very well saying that we need an advantage over other countries so we can sell our own laws. But from an economic competitive point of view, that's unfair. But that being said, I think ultimately every country is in it for the good of its citizens. I think every government has to prioritise um, the welfare of its own um, people. So the idea that we should all be playing on an even kilter, I wouldn't say, is it's not exactly a free market principle. If anything, it's quite socialist. If, say, there was no EU and all of these regulations didn't apply, then if anything, maybe Britain would fare better compared to, say, French farmers that are heavily subsidised by EU budget. But is it not the exact ethos of the EU that we should be working with other countries and being maintaining group mentality, even if it is um, going to be a sacrifice at some of our to some of our liberties? And that is the heart of the argument. It's, it's a capitalist versus a socialist argument. Yeah, that is true. And Dan does make a valid point there. It has been noted a number of times that you know France, in particular, with the common agriculture, they get so much out from it and they fiercely defended it. But you know, to the extent that that benefits other nations, well. You know, that, that remains to be seen. OK, we need to move on from sovereignty. So uh, next point is trade and migration. Now, we focused on this a fair bit last week, but I think it's very important we come back to the topic of trade and migration, given there are crucial areas in the debate. Now, uh, a question's come in. It was from, uh, I believe it's from a Mr. Charlie Boddington uh, of Cubit House, a key member of the Cranley School Economics Department, who wants to set up, it's more of a challenge than a question, uh, and it is, what is the common market, what is a single market, and what is the difference between them. So the common market is um, or was once called the European Economic Community. So it isn't actually part of uh, existence anymore. It was integrated into part of the EU framework in 2009. Um, the single market is just a larger uh, umbrella term 
used to mention uh, a single trade block where all barriers to trade have been removed. Um, and that means uh, labor, trade, goods can be moved without being obscured by uh, natural and land borders. And that means people are free to work um, and live where they choose within a, a single market. And the EU is a, a prime example of such a single market. Okay, so EU is a single market at the moment, so free movement of people. We can go, as EU citizens, we can move wherever, capital can move wherever. Dan, do you want to follow um, up on that? In a more general sense, um, a free market, a single market, is a market in which there is free movement of goods, people, capital and services. Uh, and it's very free market based, it's very capitalist. There's no government intervention, there's no regulation. Uh, that's, I think that's supposed to be what we originally signed into. But what we have now is a common market, which is slightly different. Um, it's basically, it's the same in principle, only there are tariffs on exports out of the common market and uh, imports into the common market. And there's a degree of regulation, kind of a, a basic box that you have to tick in order to sell your goods across the EU. Okay, so for instance, so butter from New Zealand coming into the EU, there'd be a tariff on it to encourage EU member states or people within that to buy butter from, say, Germany or France or something like that. Yeah, Is that correct? Okay, great. So... With that, the other word that's come around to, to do with single market, common market, to do with the free movement of people is this idea of the Schengen area. So what is the Schengen area, uh, or the Schengen zone, as it's known, and is Britain a part of that? The Schengen area is made up of 26 European countries. It's basically, um, to go back to the idea of free movement of goods and people, it's basically, um, the, it's basically uh, the main part of uh, Central Europe, and there's, there's no border control. You can basically move from country to country um, without a passport. Uh, it's a passport-free area of travel which allows for true freedom of movement and no, Britain is not part of it. Excellent. So this is when I'm going on my skiing holiday and I, I land in Geneva and I need to go into France to go to the mountains. I, I go through the border and I don't have to show my passport. That's pretty much it, isn't it? Yeah. Okay. Excellent. And Britain's not a member of that? No. Britain on... It'd be very problematic for us to do. Okay, but interestingly enough, Norway is a member of the Schengen area, but not a member of the EU. So that's something, there's a, there's a very, very good diagram, and I will add it to the website, which is a lot of Venn diagrams. It's really interesting if you uh, are a sad political geek like me to look at it to see that you can be a member of the Schengen area, but not a member of the EU and that sort of thing. So I'll put that up there and do have a look at it. Um, so the final thing, the TTIP trade deal. Uh, that was talked about by Obama. It's been mentioned before uh, that the USA and the EU are trying to get a trade deal. Uh, is, is, is this much, is this relevant to the base at um, this stage? The TTIP stands for Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership. It's basically about trying to decrease the amount of regulatory barriers for trade for big business, um, kind of things like food safety laws, environmental legislation, banking regulation. And Although it sounds fun in practice, there have actually been a number of issues with it, and I think a lot of people are opposed to it, but it's, it's, quite, a, um, it's quite a refined issue. There's, it's very nuanced, so it's, it's quite hard to get into. Okay, well, I think we might leave that for now. Basically, from what the, the TTIP, not really hugely relevant to debate, but it's all we need to know is this new trade deal between the EU and the USA, hence why Obama was saying, well, he's focused on that. If Britain needs the EU, we're at the back of the queue because he wants to, America wants to solve that because America wants to trade heavily with the EU. Now, this relates to debates over migration, and particularly the freedom of movement of people, uh, with many, including everyone's favourite, pint-swigging, fag-smoking, hater of all things politically correct, and ex- Dulwich College alumni, Nigel Farage, uh, who has had quite a bit to say on this aspect. Let's have a bit of a listen to Nigel Farage uh, talking about migration in relation to the EU debate. What we need to do, what the Leave campaign needs to do, and what I have urged, Vote Leave, the official designated vehicle, we have got to get 
into the other half of the pitch. We've got to start attacking the enemy's goal. And where the enemy are at their absolute weakest is on this whole question of open-door migration, the effect that it's had on the lives of ordinary Britons over the course of the last decade, and the threat that it poses given the new terror and security threat that we face in the West. Mr Farage, our, and the vote lead uh, argument is that by being part of the EU, Britain has no control over our borders due to the free movement of people. I mean, how far is this true? Well, this is a bit of a difficult one that's been talked about quite a lot. Uh, and I think one of the most difficult things is that it constantly seems that there's never a right number for the net migration into this country. Um, like, we're seeing figures that just get thrown around that can range, range from 200,000 to 6 million. Um, and it's just impossible to try and understand when, when you're getting... I mean, when there was that failure in the E-gates uh, recently, um, it's impossible to try and to try and grasp that. And it's, and it's been one of the poorer areas of this debate so far in that um, migration and immigration has been really badly talked about because it just seems to be throwing around rhetoric rather than dealing with pure facts because it seems that no one actually knows. But there is a point, though, that if, say, another country is let into the EU, say, for instance, Turkey, which is on the cars potentially, that uh, if Turkey are let into the EU, we remain in the EU, our borders are open to Turkish citizens to come and work in the UK. I think, in principle, the idea of a point system works because it means we can choose who we let in. It's not kind of a, um, a broad brush. We kind of let everyone in. And I think a Schengen, a kind of uh, free uh, movement area, works if... You're, if it's an exclusive club, if you handpick who you choose, but it, it becomes an issue when there are however many uh, members, it's something like 20-something or other. The point is the, the less exclusive the club becomes, the more issue there is with the movement of people and kind of who and who you don't allow. On that point, there was something really interesting in the Times today, slightly uh, different, but um, it showed that David Cameron's deal on... Uh, cap on migrant benefits was only active for 10% of immigrants to this country. And that was only because 90% of immigrants, um, 90 to 80% of immigrants who come to this country don't claim any benefits whatsoever. And I thought that was a really interesting uh, counter to the to the arguments that have been thrown around about uh, benefit caps and so on. Yes, that showed that quite a lot of people who migrated to the UK actually want to come here and work and contribute rather than just claim benefits. Um, so the, the, the final thing with that is that the vote leave say, if we leave, then we can control this, we can have a point-based system, um, and this so-called migration crisis would be solved. If we, we left the EU, have they got a valid point here? That's what I don't understand, because if in vote leave, um, one of the sort of things that we'd require if we left is to be part of the European single market, which um, you need to accept free movement as part of being the terms of being part of it. Um, so in leaving, you'd have to rejoin the single market and then re-accept all the immigration problems that already exist. I'm not sure if the two are synonymous, whether you need free movement of people, whether we have to opt into that in order to be part of the, the free trade zone. Isn't it part of a fundamental part of a single market, though, where freedom of movement is part of freedom of labour and goods? And that's also what France and Germany have alluded to, that, you know, if you, if you want to be part of the, have access to the common market, you've got to abide to its principles. If you want to have access and the benefits, you've got to also sign up to some of the costs and the constraints. Um, interesting point there. So the final part uh, on this week's podcast is human rights. So we've got a, a question from a, a good friend of the podcast and from the department, uh, retired captain uh, T.G. Leake, formerly of the Grenadier Guards, who uh, has, has written in to ask, hello, old chaps or chapesses, uh, heard uh, the rather bonkers Home Secretary of ours, Theresa May, going on about how we should not leave the EU, but rather we should leave the European Convention on Human Rights instead. Can you tell me, please, what this is all about? Are they not the same thing? 
Now, before we answer this, let's hear what the Home Secretary, Theresa May, had to say uh, this Monday about this. The case for Britain remaining a member of organisations such as NATO, the World Trade Organisation and the United Nations, for example, is clear. But as I have said before, the case for remaining signatory of the European Convention on Human Rights, which means Britain is subject to the jurisdiction of the European Court of Human Rights, is not clear. Because despite what people sometimes think, it wasn't the European Union that delayed for years the extradition of Abu Hamza, almost stopped the deportation of Abu Qatada, and tried to tell Parliament that however we voted, we could not deprive prisoners of the vote. It was the European Convention on Human Rights. OK, so a slightly different aspect of the debate there. Um, team, European Charter of Human Rights, what is it? How are we linked to it? Is it to do with the EU? Um, well, firstly, I want to say it's basically nothing to do with the EU. It's a totally separate issue. It's The European Charter on Human Rights is a, basically a legal document which sets out and clarifies individual freedoms and rights. Um, basically, its principle is to make fundamental human rights more explicit for citizens. Um, but it's not, it's not legally binding. Well, it's, it's not legally binding from, uh, from Parliament, uh, from, from our respect on Parliament. Uh, our Parliament can choose to ignore the rulings, but politically they can't choose to uh, ignore everything because, you know, then they'd be seen as authoritarian getting into trouble. So, um, but is it to do with the EU? You said it isn't. Is it, is it a separate institution? Um, it is in that you can be in... You can subscribe to the European Charter on Human Rights without actually being in the EU. Um, so basically, the, the European Charter of Human Rights is an international court held in Strasbourg in France, um, has a number of judges equal to the number of states in the Council of Europe, which is 47 at the moment. So it's a completely different number to the number of um, states in the EU. Um, and it just in, ensures that states respect our human rights, like right to life, right to a fair hearing and things like that. And it's against, obviously, things like torture and unlawful detention. And But one some of the more... Um, um, more interesting topics that have come out of it is that um, they have um, voted that prisoners have a right to vote in, in countries, whereas um, because it's not necessarily legally binding, that still hasn't been passed through as legislation in the UK, um, so they still can't. And that is why, that is a lot of the criticism that uh, Theresa May has, is that there's a lot of red tape to go through, that they're deciding a lot of the things that we may not necessarily agree with. And it's part of the um, Conservative manifesto that we want a British Bill of Rights rather than to add have to adhere to the European um, Court of Human Rights. So, so what I'm hearing around it, it's kind of irrelevant to the debate, which is odd that Theresa May sort of brought this up. Uh, it seems to be kind of, you know, the classic Conservative dead cat strategy from the uh, Remain campaign to try and deflect uh, people's attention to something else. Uh, it's really confusing because um, not only is it irrelevant to the debate, but it's also an argument for leaving the EU, if anything, because people will be confused and think that we need to leave this and therefore they would it'd be associated with the EU. So that it seems strange that Theresa May, who's in favour of staying in the EU, would bring this up at all. It seems like she's um, either throwing this dead cat in the ring or she's trying to attract more media attention to herself to keep because she hasn't been in, in the limelight for a while. Yeah, very true. I mean, this is it's also human rights, classic Daily Mail territory is, you know, with the, the prisoner voting that the European Court of Human Rights ruled that prisoners should be allowed to vote in the UK, which was very unpopular over here. They ruled that terrorist suspects uh, had the right to remain. They shouldn't be deported. They were plotting terrorist activity. Again, the tabloids newspapers from the right wing over here criticised it. So it is, uh, you know, it seems relevant for the vote 
leave campaign to lump it in with the EU and get people to think they're the same thing and force people to vote out. So again, very strange from Theresa May there, using it essentially to try and form an argument for the Remain. It's a completely separate debate, which is um, slightly strange and it sort of uh, draws attention to the fact that this whole EU debate has been has been diluted by so many other things entering in that we've sort of got very distracted from fundamentally what we've been talking about in this podcast about what the EU is. Okay, final thing, for my AS students that are listening, please don't confuse that. And your AS exam, the European Court of Human Rights in your judiciary module, very different from the EU, happens every year. Uh, Okay, so that's just about all we've got time for uh, this week. Um, Many thanks for everyone for sending in your questions. uh, And please do continue to to send them in. Uh, I hope we've got some way to unbunking some of the truth, lies, emphatic rhetoric surrounding this debate. Um, My thanks once again to Laura, Ali, Dan and Cam for all your hard work today uh, in helping out our dedicated listeners. Uh, And thanks once again to Ed Walsh, uh, George Royal and Fred Bradley for all their support in putting this podcast together. So uh, goodbye from Cam, Laura, Ali and Dan. Uh, And it's goodbye from me. Goodbye. Thank you very much. And we'll see you next week. (laughs) 